Welcome to Access Utah. The once quiet field of epigenetics is now making big waves in biological sciences. Laboratories across the world are filling up with researchers studying the human epigenome. It literally means above the genome. Today on the program, producer Sherry Quinn explores the paradigm shift in biology with German scientist Wolf Reich, recognized as a world leader in the field of epigenetics. He is known for discovering what is called epigenetic reprogramming and for shedding light on the idea that the environment can sculpt our heritable traits without changing the structure of our DNA. This will be coming up after the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. The study of epigenetics and biology went from a phenomenon to a field and is getting a lot of attention these days. It may underlie human disease and explain why humans are so different from mice, fish, and primates, even though we share the same number of genes. What makes us so different from other animals is a mystery scientists are trying to solve. Epigenome as it sounds, literally means above the genome. It is something that affects a cell, organ, or individual without altering the genetic code, but it could influence how DNA functions and whether a gene is turned on or off. Epigenetics is providing compelling evidence that what we eat, drink, smoke, and experience in life sculpts heritable traits that can be passed on from one generation to the next through our epigenome. In our ongoing series of programs about epigenetics, we have profiled the work of scientists at the front lines. In part one, we featured Randy Jurdle, well known in the field for his research with agouti mice, that has revealed a mother's diet during pregnancy can influence gene expression in her offspring by altering the epigenome. Jurdle has taken on the role of spokesperson for the field here in the U.S. So I, I think of the field of epigenetics and genomics like a computer. So if you think of the, the genomics, uh, DNA, being similar to the hardware of the computer, then epigenetics or epigenomics are the programs that tell that computer when, where, and how to work. So within our cell, we actually have a programmable computer. And that's why you can have a single set of genes, single genome, uh, one from mom, one from dad, and you can have 250 to 300 different cell types because the programs are different for every one of those cells. Last week, we heard from Moshe Sheff, a pioneer in linking epigenetic changes to the development of diseases. He championed the idea that epigenetic changes can shift through life and that those changes are important in the establishment and spread of cancer. Cancer is an epigenetic disease and could be treated by epigenetic drugs. And I would say that perhaps a large fraction of human disease is epigenetic. Today we hear from Wolf Reich, a world-leading authority in the field of epigenetics. I'm professor of epigenetics 
at the University of Cambridge in, in the UK. And I work at an institute in Cambridge called the Babram Institute. On top of the DNA code lies another genetic language, the epigenetic code. Wolf Reich has built a career of decoding this language. I talked to him at the 2011 Keystone Symposia on Epigenetics in Asheville, North Carolina. So this very exciting area of work, the, the possibility that the environment and what we eat, what we experience during our lives, what we experience perhaps even as embryos at, as we grow up, etc. What our parents have experienced, what our grandparents have experienced even perhaps, that that has an influence on the epigenome, on the epigenetic makeup of the genome, and that that can therefore affect us today in the way we are, whether we're healthy, whether we're not healthy at times, etc. According to Reich, epigenetics is crucial to understanding disease, to making better medical diagnoses, and for finding better therapies. The other thing that I find fascinating, and, and I find many people are fascinated by it, is to understand better inheritance. So what is it that we really get from our parents, from our grandparents, you know? We all know about genes, so we can tell that our eye color and things like that, our height, those, those all, many of these things that, you know, the parents that look similar, so, so there's clearly genes there. But there are also other things now, epigenetics, and it's quite fascinating, I think, to think about that and how that can explain things where maybe the genes don't play out, you know, exactly like they were, the cards were shuffled. And sometimes things are slightly different from how the genes dictated. And that's a fascinating area. And it's kind of almost also a liberating thought uh, for, for people that, you know, you're not necessarily a slave of your genes. So where 10 years ago, the human genome, this really important effort to sequence all the genes in the genome, was kind of heading in the direction that once we know all the genes, then we know everything, okay? So then we can explain all the diseases, we can cure all the diseases, we can explain everything that we got from our parents. And that's probably not the case. We probably have to say that's probably not the case. And so it's kind of a liberating thought also that we're not necessarily complete slaves of our genes. You know, we have some kind of other type of freedom, freedom of the genome <laughs> almost. And, and that also, I think, fascinates people and, uh, you know, it's important for people to know that actually. Reich was destined to become a scientist, but epigenetics was somewhat of an accident. Both of my parents are, are scientists, physicists and mathematicians, so, so I didn't really know that I wanted to do science, but I think it was kind of almost inevitable um, that I went into science. And actually, I studied medicine um, to begin with and, 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 and finished. And, and qualified as a doctor, and was only at 
towards the end of my medical work at university that I kind of felt, well, let's try and do this PhD kind of thing. Let's just try it, see how it works. I didn't know what what I wanted really to do. And, and it was by accident almost that I bumped into uh, one of the pioneers of epigenetics at the time, uh, Rudolf Janisch, who's at uh, Whitehead Institute, MIT. And I um, kind of just sat there in my chair and was completely you know, completely taken by what he was talking about, the excitement. I could see the the future excitement. And so next day I went to I went to his lab and knocked on his door and said, uh, can I do a PhD here? To which he responded, uh, we're not really interested in having medics here. <laughs> which he was very um, qualified to say because he's a medic himself. <laughs> So that was my start of, um, I mean, PhD work. And I was fortunate that at that time, DNA methylation had just kind of appeared on the horizon. Nobody was talking about epigenetics, wasn't called epigenetics then, but DNA methylation was around. And what year was this? Um, so this was uh, around 1985. And then, then I finished, and what kind of intrigued me about... Uh, the work that we were doing was to try and understand more about how these epigenetic mechanisms might be involved in development. So development of an embryo from the beginning, the zygote, to um, an embryo, a fetus, an adult organism. This this really fascinated me. And and with the, perhaps with this possible kind of idea that epigenetic mechanisms might play a role in in this process. And so, at that time, England was uh, so. Sorry, I forgot to say that all of this happened in Germany, okay. <laughs> where I come from. Okay. <laughs> um, so I did all of my schooling and university in in Germany. And, and, and under the, one of the pioneers of epigenetics, yeah, there. Yeah, he was in, in in Hamburg at that at that time and moved to um, to MIT later. How did you convince him to accept you as a medic? <laughs> uh, good question. I don't know. I just uh, I wish I just didn't leave. I guess <laughs> I just said no. I, but I really do want to <laughs> do this. So I guess yeah, it was a dialogue, and and from that quickly developed uh, some ideas and interests and and things like that. And uh, and so I think that set me off on a path not only to be a scientist because I never went back to to practicing medicine after after that, not only as a scientist, but but also the direction of science and the excitement of doing kind of cutting-edge science uh, it just got me hooked, I think, at that time. Reich then got excited about the possibility that epigenetics played a role in embryo development and naturally landed in England on the front lines of embryology only this time, his lab was a blank canvas. England was, at that time, very kind of leading in embryology and, uh, and looking at embryos and development. Very famous people there, Anne McLaren and Richard Gardner and, and people like that. So England was potentially the best place for me to kind of pick up on this and study it and so I went there and visited and I bumped into another pioneer of epigenetics 
which is Azim Sarani, who um, who uh, discovered imprinting. And again, I started talking to him, and 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 I got really hooked with what he was doing, how he was approaching science, how he was thinking. He's very deep and careful kind of thinker. And um, again, this was an interesting kind of situation because the the labs that they had at the time, there was absolutely no molecular biology there. There was just animal work. And it was a little bit like a farm because there was also other types of animal work. There were pigs and sheep. And it was a little bit out in the sticks and and the farm and no molecular biology. And Azim, uh, when I kind of arrived or decided to go there, talked with him he showed me an empty room in the in the building and said this is our molecular biology lab <laughs> so <laughs> so i'm still was there, was still, there a microscope <laughs> uh there was very little in that room actually <laughs> so i'm still surprised that having come from a kind of cutting edge um, molecular biology kind of environment that that the lab in hamburg was that that I decided to go there, but it was the the excitement of this business of imprinting and the the kind of idea that that there were things that were passed on from parents to children, which were not based on DNA, which were outside of the information that's in the DNA and the sequence and this fascinated me this idea that you know there could be there could be inheritance that could be things that we parents give to their children which is not based on DNA sequence and I, I think this is one of the you know most important principles in epigenetics that there is and this got me so excited that I decided to move into that empty room <laughs> And, uh, and set it up and equip it as a, you know, as you would a, a molecular, modern molecular biology laboratory, and and start work there in in Cambridge. And then, how long did that take to set to set up that laboratory? So I probably took uh, a few months to okay. set things up because I was kind of a spoiled PhD student who had everything in the previous lab and. You know, everything was there and set up for me to use. And now I had to kind of think again and try, how did this actually work? <laughs> how do you actually set this up? How do you set this piece of equipment up? So uh, it, was a, it was a challenging time as well as a, uh, you know, kind of a pioneering time in a sense. And, and were there people telling you, you know, you, you won't have a career if you do this? Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember. It's a good question. Uh, I think if they did, I probably didn't want to hear it, <laughs> didn't want to listen to it, and so that's why I don't remember um, that happening. No, it, 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 it quickly picked up, and we were in this fortunate position that imprinting had just been discovered, the phenomenon, but there was no, no molecular mechanism at all. And it kind of fell to me and people, other people in the lab to kind of find a molecular approach to the to the problem and find a way that we could maybe discover what was sitting on top of the DNA, what was attached to the DNA, what was, you know, something to do with the genome but not DNA sequence. 
that was behind this kind of phenomenon. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Mountain West Bank, a community bank offering a variety of services and summer loan options for consumers. At 110 South in Brigham City, information is at mountainwestbank.com. It's a division of Glacier Bank. Dialogues is a project of Utah Public Radio, the American Studies Program at Utah State University, and the Latinos in Action Program at Mountain Crest High School. Marcus Brasileiro is a professor of Portuguese at Utah State University. Well, I grew up, I was born in this northeast state of Brazil called Piauí, in a little town 300 kilometers from the capital of the state. The town is called Floriano, and the capital is Teresina. I moved to dinner to the United States in 2002 to pursue my PhD at the University of Minnesota. So I'm here for, in August 2013, it will be 11 years. The idea of going to uh, a PhD program in the U.S. was a kind of a dream. I don't think I need to explain the place of U.S. higher education around the world. It's still the best system, if you compare in terms of system. Uh, because of funding, because of the opportunities we have here. I did study learn, uh, start learning English because I had to go through examination at the University of Minnesota. We have to go through what they call TOEFL. It's a very important test to assess your, your competence in, in English. I had to go through that. Before that, in Brazil, I started learning English because of that, I knew I was going to, to be tested. But the reality of those tests, they are very different than the reality of having to deal with real life when you move. So you do struggle a little bit, uh, even if you had learned English a little bit in school in Brazil. Marcus says that since his life in the U.S. has been mostly in universities, he has been sheltered and has not encountered racial prejudice. But he had one experience that he thought was funny and spoke to the stereotypes that people have. The other one was just funny. Uh, I was in this friend's house, and we decided to go to Home Depot to buy plants. It was summer in Minnesota. And, okay, let's go to buy some plants. And when we get there, he forgot something at his house, and his house was very close to this home depot, and said, wait wait here, and I'm going back home, and I'll be back. So it was warm, and I decided to sit it outside home depot. And I was seated there, and uh, this lady came and parked her car and opened the back of the car, and he, she was trying to put things from the cart, home depot cart, inside of her car. And it was heavy. It was a lot of stuff she was carrying. And I was just looking, and I said, okay. I went there and, and asked her, do you, do you want me to help you? Uh, I, can, I can help you. And she said, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And I said, are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. So I went back to my place, and I stayed there, seated, waiting for my friend. So after she finished everything she had to do, she came to me and asked, are you looking for a job? And I said, no, don't worry, I'm not looking for a job. I just saw that you were struggling with with the material, and I was trying to help you. 
Because this is what we do in Brazil. If someone is struggling on your side, you will help. You will offer your help. But I think because I am who I am, <laughs> she noticed on my accent that I was not from the U.S. And I was seated at, in front of Home Depot. I think she projected every single stereotype that you expect about uh, immigrants uh, in America. And no, I was going through my PhD. I was an instructor at the University of Minnesota, and I had my master's degree. I was just offering solidarity to her. But that's a very funny story. This has been Diverse Dialogues. Our thanks to Carrie Holt, Nora Anderson, and the Utah State University Diversity Council. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dr. Kyle Breitenbach, practicing evidence-based family medicine at Basin Clinic in Vernal since 1987, with emphasis in complete family health, including obstetric and pediatric care. Information is at basinclinic.com. Genomic imprinting is the process during development that sometimes leads to the exclusive expression of specific genes from only one parent. I want to go back just a little bit and ask your lab how it's changed from that time when there was nothing in it and to what, what does it look like now and how many students and yeah. postdocs and colleagues. Yeah. So, well, now fortunately it's different. It's not an empty room. <laughs> it's full of wonderful people. Um, so in my lab, there is about 14, 15 people. Um, most of them are postdocs, some of them are students. And then we're very fortunate that we have quite a big division at the Babram Institute in, in Cambridge, which is epigenetics. And so there's probably about 65, 70 people uh, all working on epigenetics. It's one of the biggest centers uh, in the world on, on, on epigenetics research. And, and it's, you know, we have everything that we need. We have big sequencing machines, which is the most important thing right now for this business. And we have all the facilities, all the modern molecular biology facilities that we need. And we're building a new building next year, <laughs> which will be exciting, actually. Reich and his team use mice as their main model organism for research. Maybe because I have this background as a, as a doctor, medical doctor, then we're always trying to apply our findings to disease situations. So uh, I have worked with colleagues quite a lot on applying findings from model, models that we've made in mice to, uh, to patient, patient situations. Um, there was a, a talk today about the Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, which is a syndrome where babies grow very large, they develop certain cancers, and we did a lot of work based on the work that we did in mice originally um, to kind of look at the epigenetics of that disease. At the moment, we're not so uh, directly engaged with this, but what we've done over the years is to find um, correlations 
between the epigenetic makeup of particular gene regions and the symptoms that these children develop. So, for example, there is a particular epigenetic marker that can tell you whether the child is more or less likely to develop cancer. And this is very useful for a physician to have that kind of marker and that information to be then monitoring the child much more carefully than than they would otherwise. Okay. So it's a useful thing. But that's a little bit in uh, in the past. Our current work is more um, involved with this business of epigenetic reprogramming. Reich's laboratory is interested in epigenetic gene programming and reprogramming in mammalian development. So the key kind of interest that we have currently is to understand something that's going on in early embryos as well as in germ cells that that give rise to, to egg and sperm. And that's a process whereby epigenetic information is actually erased from the genome. So it's taken off. A lot of researchers are working on how epigenetic marks are established in development and how that may depend on the environment, diet, and behavior. So what we do is we study a process by which the epigenetic information is taken off the DNA. This happens particularly in germ cells and early embryos. And the idea behind this is that you take off epigenetic information, which was there previously from the parents, etc., previous generations, in order to allow the embryo to start development again. So it's basically like, you can imagine it's like wiping out information so that all of the cells, when the, when the, when the zygote starts to develop in, into an embryo, so that all of the cells can then develop in different directions and different tissues and different body parts, etc. And for that to happen, we think, is that you need to erase, take off this memory, which was there from what happened previously. So for, 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 for life to start from scratch anew, you need to take the memory away, basically, is the idea. Reich says they do this in the lab. But it is basically a natural process. It happens in every embryo, immediately after fertilization in germ cells, in normal development. This is key or very important for normal development to occur. So what we do, we study this process in the lab and try and understand how it works, what molecules are involved, etc., etc. What, you know, what it does, what it, if it goes wrong, what goes wrong. You know, do we use the insights that we get from that in the lab to, to apply it? And, and we do. And this is also interesting because, again, at, the, at this meeting, we heard a lot about how you can reprogram adult cells into embryo cells. This is this process of so-called IPS cell generation. It's also possible to do this by cloning, where you take an adult cell and put it into a, a zygote, into an oocyte, and, get, uh, and get, get development again. And for this process of reprogramming, which in the end can be very useful for therapy, for getting cells for patients, for this kind of process, this reprogramming is 
is very, very important. So it's, if you imagine that you take an adult cell, what has to happen is that you make it forget that it was an adult cell. And so you try and do that by wiping out the epigenome or by erasing the epigenome. And if we can find ways by which the epigenome is reprogrammed in this way, in the natural situation in embryos, then we can apply this kind of insights to making this kind of process, getting stem cells from from adult cells for patients, more, more effective, more efficient, and safer uh, in the end to use in, in patients as well. Yeah. Fascinating that, that you could wipe out the memory of a cell, then reprogram it, yeah. right? And is it possible to describe that process? I think I'll spare you the molecular details of it, but I mean, it's all got to do with what we call epigenetic marks. So these are things that are little chemicals, groups that are attached to DNA. So normally, as you know, the DNA just reads as a code, you know, G, A, T, C, all the, f- the four bases repeated again and again. But in epigenetics, there is additional information attached to the DNA. So it could be chemical groups called methyl groups attached to DNA. The DNA itself, which is two meters long in each of our cells, is wrapped up with proteins, which are called histones, so that eventually all of the stuff fits into a tiny little cell. So all of these things together that stick to the DNA, methyl groups, histones, etc., form this epigenetic layer of information. And so what we're trying to do is to find processes and enzymes and things that change this and erase it. And so what we're trying to find is chemical processes, biochemical processes that can take methyl group out of the DNA. So other people are now working on how you can put them in the DNA, again, in response to environment, to diet, and all of these kind of things. And we address the opposite question is, well, can we identify things that take it off the DNA and erase that, that memory that the cell has? And so we are mm, making a little bit of progress with that. And so we've identified uh, two pathways by which methyl groups can be taken off the DNA. And in essence, this involves another chemical way that they're modified by, and which then enables the, the basic kind of chemistry in the cell to attack this methyl group. So normally a methyl group on its own is a very stable thing. Once it's attached to DNA, it hangs on for sheer life. It's very, very stable. It's almost like, um, you could imagine it almost like a fifth letter in the DNA code. It's so stable, really stuck to the DNA. And so something has to happen to it first, chemically, that makes it less stable and makes it kind of easier to slip off basically the DNA and that's the kind of things that we work on and we've identified uh, a number of pathways that can do that.
In fact, two papers on Reich's findings were published in the scientific journal Nature in March and April 2011. And this shows how a pathway called hydroxymethylation, which is basically the way that we can chemically weaken the methyl group to make it you know, easy to snip off the DNA, is involved in that process of removing these marks and making the cells more stem cell-like, more embryo-like, uh, more, you know, eventually uh, more, more better to use in, in therapeutic approaches. That story is focused on stem cells, so-called ES cells, embryonic stem cells. And what it kind of describes is how the removal process of epigenetic information, the only explanation, and that epigenetic changes, some mediated by the environment, some mediated by smoking, etc., can very well contribute to that. And now it is possible to take a cell from any organ in the adult body. We also do that, but the key thing that we're doing is what we were kind of talking about a little bit, which is to erase epigenetic marks. I mean, it's all got to do with um, what we call epigenetic marks. So these are things that are little chemicals, groups that are attached to DNA. So normally, as you know, the DNA just reads as a code, you know, G, A, T, C, all the, f- the four bases repeated again and again. But in epigenetics, there is additional information attached to the DNA. So it could be chemical groups called methyl groups attached to DNA. Um, the DNA itself, which is two meters long in each of our cells, is wrapped up with proteins, which are called histones, so that eventually all of the stuff fits into a tiny little cell. Um, so all of these things together that stick to the DNA, methyl groups, histones, etc., form this epigenetic um, layer of information that everybody at the meeting is, uh, is, is talking about and is excited about. And so what we're trying to do is to find processes and enzymes and things that change this and erase it. And so what we're trying to find is uh, chemical processes, biochemical processes that can take methyl group out of the DNA. So other people at the meeting are working on how you can put them in the DNA, again, in response to environment, to diet, and all of these kind of things. And we address the opposite question is, well, can we identify things that take it off the DNA and, and as you said, erase that, that memory that the cell has? And so we are mm, making a little bit of progress with that. And so we've identified uh, two pathways by which methyl groups can be taken off DNA. And in essence, this involves another chemical way that they're modified by, and which then enables the the basic kind of chemistry in the cell to attack this methyl group. So normally a methyl group on its own is a very stable thing. 
once it's attached to DNA, it hangs on for sheer life. It's very, very stable. It's almost like, um, you could imagine it almost like a fifth letter in the DNA code. It's so stable, really stuck to the DNA. And so something has to happen to it first, chemically, that makes it less stable and makes it kind of easier to snip off basically the DNA and that's the kind of things that we work on and we've identified uh, a number of pathways that can do that. And is that what you're publishing then, one of those pathways? So one paper's just come out in Nature Communications a couple of weeks ago and the second one is coming out in Nature uh, this Sunday, uh, 3rd of April. And this shows how a pathway called hydroxymethylation, which is basically the way that we can chemically weaken the methyl group to make it you know, easy to snip off the DNA, is involved in that process of removing these marks and making the cells more stem cell-like, more embryo-like, uh, more, you know, eventually... Um, more, more better to use in, in therapeutic approaches. Okay. And then how long did this take? <laughs> how long did this work take? Yeah. Uh, the last work, actually, the, the paper that uh, we're publishing on Sunday, from start to finish, wasn't so long, um, but we knew that we were racing the competition. <laughs> so this is a kind of a very exciting area at the moment. And there's several groups internationally uh, working on this. So I think we started this work about two years ago, uh, which in our kind of science is not that long, actually. Um, often pieces of work that we do in the lab can take four or five years or something like that to, uh, to, come, to, to come to a conclusion and, and publication. So two years is, is pretty quick, actually. Yeah, yeah, that does sound quick, actually, yeah. for yeah. And there are several groups that are um, publishing um, probably concurrently with us or maybe a little bit later, uh, several, as I was telling you, it's, it's a little bit of a race. Mm -hmm. And uh, several papers will be coming out on this new, on this new mechanism. So uh, this is exciting, exciting mm -hmm. time. Yeah. What, what other labs are there that you're racing with, so to speak? Um, so there's a lab in, in Copenhagen. Um, there's a lab in the U.S. Um, can't remember now where it <laughs> which universities comes back in the moment, which university it is. Um, so it's basically um, it's it's basically uh, some of the big uh, European, Japanese, and U.S. Um, big epigenetics labs that kind of are chase, trying to chase this down at the moment. Okay. Um, and uh, just had a couple more questions for you. I just want to make sure that... And by the way, thank you for explaining it so well. And so it's... You're probably having to explain things that are <laughs> very, they're, they're, very... They're very tricky. They're technical, you know, if, if you... Uh, yeah. I mean, you listen to the talks, right? <laughs> yeah, and I honestly, I, I don't get that much because I don't have the background. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I get yeah. little, little pieces. So it can here. get technical very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I appreciate you explaining it all from the beginning. And so it's, um, 
really um, easy, I think, to not easy, but it uh, comes across well for the listeners and for uh, me to understand. I have, I have a little bit of me- media experience. Okay. <laughs> okay. I work with the Science Media Center in, oh. in, in London, actually, is an outfit that, oh. that uh, is set up to engage scientists and the public, and, you know, they teach you how to do things. Oh, is it? Very useful. Very useful. Worked out really well. Yeah. So, w- w- is your work then establishing, or is it how the epigenome is established? Is that what your work? Yeah, I mean, uh, we also do that, but the key, the key thing that we're doing is, is what we were kind of talking about a little bit, which is to erase epigenetic marks. Now. That is kind of also important for then to then establish new ones, because if you haven't erased them properly, you sometimes can't establish them, you know, the new ones properly. And so, taking things off is probably also quite important, so that we don't necessarily inherit bad habits from our parents. <laughs> sometimes, because it's possible that their epigenome, um, you know, experience things through nutritional things. We heard about famine, for example, or smoking or, you know, all sorts of things. And it may be a good idea to kind of largely take those influences off as we develop, because otherwise we might kind of inherit the sins of our parents (laughs) in the epigenome, if you wish. Um, I mean, there are examples of where environmental influences, smoking, etc., seems to have these kind of influences from grandparents to parents to children also. And that's another important theme at the meeting is so-called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. And how, you know, how often does that occur in humans? How important is it? Does it affect us? Does it, you know, affect how susceptible we are to certain diseases, etc., etc.? And and this is very important to establish and very exciting to establish, I think. Um, and 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 one of the things that's kind of a little bit clear from our work, I think, is that that a lot of that information, that epigenetic stuff, that grandparents, parents, etc., contributed, probably gets erased again, probably gets, you know, taken off, off the epigenome again by this mechanism that we were talking about, the epigenetic reprogramming mechanism. So that, unlike in plants, where this kind of thing is very common, because plants don't appear to have a very effective wiping out kind of system mechanism, in humans, it's probably the case that this type of epigenetic inheritance is not as frequent. Um, I mean, certainly nothing compared with the genetic inheritance, with the influence of the genes, which is the dominant heritable influence that we have. So not only are they figuring out how the epigenome is established and how to make markers, they are figuring out how to erase epigenetic marks which raises the possibility of erasing disease and bad habits. 
There are two phases involved in wiping out these marks. One is in the germ cells themselves. So these are the cells that lead to sperm and egg that are kind of the precursor cells, if you wish, of the actual sperm and egg. And then there's another wiping out phase, which is just after fertilization in very early embryos. And that one in very early embryos probably has to do with the fact that these cells kind of need to forget very quickly that there were egg and sperm, because egg and sperm are quite special cells and specialized cells, whereas early embryos are obviously very kind of multitasking type of cells. They can do lots of different things. And this is why we think the wiping out mechanism has to be there right at the beginning of life, immediately after fertilization, to make this kind of thing possible. You know, you can kind of think of it like the brain, you know, you want when you grow up as a child. You don't want your brain clogged up with all of the memories that, say, your parents acquired, right? Mm -hmm. So because that's important so that you can learn, that you can survive in an environment, etc. And so it's like a little bit like the brain. You want to not carry around <laughs> excess information that you got earlier. Um, so it's a little bit like that. Early embryos also don't want excess information um, yeah. because they can then, you know, develop in all directions and do new things, basically. That's the idea. Reich and his colleagues have observed transgeneration effects from behaviors such as smoking in human populations. If your grandparents smoked, they suspect it can show up in your own epigenome. At the moment, we don't know how they work. But from mouse models and other types of model organisms, you can ask how this kind of thing can happen, obviously. And not all the information gets wiped out. So apparently some of the epigenetic marks do stick and can be heritable from grandparents to parents to children. Not all of them, as we said, because a lot of it gets wiped out. But some of it can apparently survive. And this may be behind these kind of transgenerational effects that people observe to do with smoking things like that. But there are also increasingly some very good animal models um, where influence of particular substitutes in the diet get investigated and see what effect that might have on the epigenome and potentially on transgenerational herit heritable kind of uh, situation, actually. Some parents might not be too happy about it, right? Because <laughs> not only can you blame your hair and eye color on them, but maybe a few other traits. Well, you know? so, so, yeah, so I tell you, <laughs> I was talking to a German journalist a few months back. He was telling me that people in Germany, maybe also in other places, are beginning to think about suing their parents and their grandparents mm -hmm. for the potential damage that they could have done to their epigenome. <laughs> Just think about the, you know, in the future also the, the, the potential ethical implications that epigenetics might have in the, in the future. So it's all happening. <laughs> Apparently there's a website where people are beginning to kind of talk about these ideas and thinking about it and 
getting legal advice, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Watch the space. <laughs> Professor Wolfreich discovered epigenetic reprogramming, and he found the environment influences epigenetic programming in embryos, with changes in gene expression persisting in adults and their offspring. He is a fellow of the Royal Society, a self-governing fellowship of many of the world's most distinguished scientists. Thank you for listening. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Questions is made possible by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com.